You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. And Professor Timothy Geary, not Timothy Leary, Timothy Geary. Uh, he's at McGill University. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, his studies on uh, parasitology, parasites in general. So, Tim, thanks for coming. Thanks, Rich. I should also point out that I have an appointment at Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Okay, excellent. Has anyone ever uh, confused you for Timothy Leary, or was I the uh, first to make that? I couldn't that tell you the number of times, Rich. Uh, my phrase, I don't know how to spell my name, I say. It's like Timothy Leary, but he's dead and I'm not. Well, good. Excellent. So tell me about your, uh, your research, a little, bit, a little bit about your background, if you would. Sure. My background actually is in pharmacology, the study of medicines. And uh, I became interested in parasitology and decided to uh, work on malaria chemotherapy. Did you say so, mal malaria chemotherapy? Yes, I was trying to kill malaria parasites. In 1980, there was emerging problems of drug resistance, which is a, a problem that plagues every area of infectious diseases. Uh, in alternative, I was fortunate to be accepted into a postdoctoral program sponsored by the USNIH at Michigan State University. It gave me the opportunity to investigate uh, the basic science behind anti-malarial drugs and also to do some field uh, work in Sudan on uh, testing some drugs. So introduction to the field of tropical medicine and parasitology, and it cemented my interest, my lifelong interest in understanding how parasites and hosts interact and figuring out ways to influence that interaction in favor of the host. So what makes uh, parasites a unique uh, form of life? Well, a lot of things uh, from an infectious disease standpoint, they are like fungi, they are eukaryotic organisms. So they don't uh, act like bacteria or viruses and that makes them in some ways harder to kill because they use the same sorts of machinery that our cells do. Um, some of them, uh, incredibly complex life cycles and lifestyles that for many parasites don't acutely, but establish kind of a, a safe space within the host, aspers too much. So uh, malaria is sort of an outlier in that regard and that it's acutely lethal in people who are naive to it, who have not been exposed to it. But individuals who... Uh, grow up in malarious regions tend to develop a sort of a, an immunity that lets not die from it. 
So they have really an interesting uh, relationship with their hosts. Co-evolu- co- they, they have a co-evolutionary history that's kind of unique to infectious diseases. Yeah, do, do parasites undergo um, a lot of change once they're in their hosts in order to build their niche and accommodate the changing conditions of the host? Is that what drives, you think, their evolution? It's a very good question, and certainly it's true, particularly for some of the larger parasites, the worms that I have studied for the past 35 or 40 years. They tend to infect as juveniles, larval stages, and they develop through a couple of molts into adult parasites inside the host. So they have to navigate. Many of them migrate through tissues. They navigate a variety of host defenses, and they tend to establish these chronic infections in 10 years or more in a person, which is very unusual. Bloodstream, some in the gut, some in the skin. Um, they're remarkably adept at, at establishing permissive niches has there been a longitudinal, let's say, DNA sequencing or looking at the, uh, you know, the phenotype of a given parasite when it's in a host? You know, if you have, uh, let's say, you know, uh, malaria or, you know, not just one worm, but multiple parasites in you, um, have they been looked at longitudinally to see how they change along with the host every time? You know, they have. Uh, there have been some tremendous advances in um, looking at transcriptomic and proteomic profiles of a variety of parasites in the host and in vectors, because many parasites are transmitted by arthropods, for instance, malaria by, by mosquitoes and flies. Um, sand flies transmit leishmania. Ticks can transmit parasites. It's, it's quite highly developed. These are things, the huge weaknesses we have, Rich, is that the toolkit for functional genomics, where we can go and manipulate the genome of a parasite to see which aspects, which genes, that toolbox is pretty, pretty bare. Uh, in a related parasite called Toxoplasma, uh, there are some advances made there in another protozoan parasite. But for the worms, barely scratching the surface of functional genomics tools, DNA. And that's really what's essential to allow us to understand sites, interact with their host. I guess what's scary and interesting, so I, I need some help with nomenclature here. Just naming. Sure. So if I'm going to get a parasite from a, you know, a mosquito, first of all, the parasite is functioning at least in some way inside the mosquito and then inside mm-hmm. of me even though I'm very different, completely different creature. And then is there a name for a parasite that is in its current delivery host? And then is there a different name for it or a different name for me being its final host? Or am I its final host? I don't know. So so there is nomenclature. So um, a host in which the parasite undergoes sexual is considered the definitive host. So in the case of uh, malaria, that's actually the mosquito because it's where the two, the male and the female little parasites unite and form babies, which are then injected back just amplify them. So that's the, the key for defining host is where does sex, for parasitic helminths, for the worms, uh, that typically occurs in the vertebrate. So in us, for instance. 
sex happens and babies are produced. The babies are then ingested by a vector. They develop in that vector to an infectious stage, originally re-injected into the host, into a new host. I hope that helps. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering, what are the differences, for instance, in, um, you know, let's say, again, going back to malaria, its behavior in mosquitoes, does it make mosquitoes ill or they're fine? And it's only when it gets into us that it changes to be the cause sickness. And then, you know, can someone get malaria from someone else that's infected with malaria or it's a dead end for that parasite for some reason? Super question. So, yes, they do make the mosquitoes sick. And they're not polite uh, residents. They rupture, they travel. Um, they do reduce the lifespan of the mosquito, and that depends partly on how many parasites they ingest, uh, so how many develop inside of it. It's the same with us, uh, in a sense. So the mosquitoes get sick, but in the mosquito, the parasite develops into the infectious stage for us. So... I couldn't get it from you by shaking hands or something like that. But if I took a sample of your blood that had malaria parasites in it and injected it into somebody, yeah, they would get malaria. But otherwise, they have to be bitten by a mosquito. Right. So there's no natural way. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's weird. The parasite's wily and yeah. it, it's able to go from one creature to a totally different type of creature. But yeah. then, you know, us, are, we are essentially a dead end for it. You know, well, not only, uh, I guess, kills us, but... So so for malaria, you know, the point that, that, that we serve as the amplification host, right? So a few infective stages, which are called sporozoids for that, in, that particular parasite, enter into us and they first go to our liver and they start to divide and they produce thousands of descendants. They rupture out of liver cells and enter red blood cells and continue to reproduce asexually. They just reproduce by division. Uh, millions and millions and millions are formed. Some of those go on to form what are known as gametocytes, which are the sexual stages, male and female. So the more parasites you have in your blood, typically the more gametocytes you produce and the easier it is for that uh, infection to go to a mosquito that bites you and takes a blood sample. So we are the, the stage of its life cycle that allows it to continue to get into mosquitoes. Oh, okay, okay. So we're not we're in that end, we're just like a temporary holding station. Or, yeah, you know, we're the amplifiers. Yeah. We, we, I mean, people in serious infections, 10% uh, of red blood cells can be occupied by a parasite, which is pretty lethal. Oh. You, you mentioned that um, malaria does... Okay, so is there a difference in a parasite that does not go into any of our cells? Yes. does not necessarily use their machinery, but just feeds off of yes. feed versus ones that go into our cells, yep. like a virus, and use our cells' machinery? So the worms... So, so malaria parasites, there's a whole bunch of parasites that are protozoan, a single cell. Um, I mentioned toxoplasma, which is probably the most common parasite in the world. Probably 30% of humans have toxoplasma residing in them. Uh, malaria, leishmania, cryptosporidium, the list is very long. 
But on the other hand, there are worms, uh, the helminths that fall into several categories. Some people are familiar with tapeworms just from literature because we've talked about them forever. Um, but there are roundworms or nematodes that may live in the gut or in the tissues. And then there are flukes uh, or trematodes, uh, which live also in tissues or the gut. Uh, they're evolutionarily quite distinct, but they, they have the same sort of lifestyle of feeding or accessing nutrition from the host um, while hiding from it immunologically. So uh, parasites succeed in hosts by hiding from us. They somehow disable our normally highly effective immune systems. So those parasites, we can kill them. There are effective drugs. We tend to paralyze them. Um, and some prevent them from influencing the host. Some like shut them up, if you will, stop the molecular dialogue that allows them to go into stealth mode in the host. Parasites appear to have characteristics of many other life forms. Like in, in one sense, they appear to act like cancer does. Yeah. You know, they hide, hide from our immune system and they proliferate, et cetera. And in yeah. another sense, they are like viruses and they use the cell's machinery yeah. in some cases and enter into it and co-opt it. So, you know, it's, I guess there's a, a tremendous amount to be learned from parasites, it sounds like, for all of biology. Yes, there, there is so much. Um, I, it's why I have continued to, there's so much about basic biology of these pathogens. It's incredible. Um, we're only scratching the surface of that at the moment. So most, what's, what's the most in, incredible thing that science has seen a parasite do? Is there anything that, like symbiogenesis or anything literally well, tied to evolution? Does it answer sure. any of those questions for us? You know? So, so it, it, in many ways, right? So, so there has been a long-standing theory that parasitism underlies sexual selection in a variety of animals. So if you have a lot of parasites, you're sick, and you, you're, you spend a lot of energy combating them, you can't develop colorful feathers and things like this. So there's a thought that when male animals display or show these elaborate modifications, it demonstrates that they're healthy. So they do shape, um, and resistance to them is a driver. Uh, I'm sure, Rich, you're familiar with sickle cell anemia. Right that evolved directly by pressure from malaria parasites. So people who are heterozygous for the sickle cell trait are protected from the lethal concentration. Um, even though a homozygous person has significant health issues, the benefit of survival is so strong that that mutation became fixed in human population. Yeah. What do you mean? You mean sickle cell anemia was a beneficial mutation to ward off the effects of, uh, of, of a certain parasite? Of, of malaria, really. Yeah. That is, um, we understand more and more about how that protects, but it is true. It makes the red blood cell sites for the parasite. Hmm. Another great example is this, uh, I believe this, this theory has still got some legs. If you look at the regions where autoimmune diseases like asthma or Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease, where those are common, parasites are scarce. So 
we, we need to understand that as a species, humans, the null state of a human was to be parasitized. So in time long ago, we had all had parasites uh, where we evolved and we adapted to them and they, as they adapted to us, uh, when we got rid of them, like in the West, as we moved into colder climates and developed sanitation and things like that, it seems like our immune systems uh, lost their way a bit. So rather than being targeted to getting rid of or to controlling parasites, they seem to have more incidents where they attack us. And when you give people parasites, small parasites, it seems to have a protective effect against autoimmune diseases. Things are far from clear. Um, not many people really look at this because it's kind of weird. Yeah. But pretty clearly, to modify our immune responses, to increase their stability or live in wormy areas, don't seem to get these autoimmune diseases. Well, parasites, obviously, their job number one, I guess, is to protect themselves and proliferate, etc. But um, uh, okay, so you were talking about sickle cell anemia. It's, it's theorized that that came about because of a response to persistent parasites. Yep. Has, has there been any recent observation of someone's changing their, you know, their physiology in response to, you know, having a parasite in a significant way? Oh, yeah. It, it, there's, there's lots of that that happens. Um, so... Again, the science is kind of scattered and it's not as robust as it should be. If we look at the veterinary end of things, there are very clear uh, data sets that show that parasitism, even mild parasitism by, by worms, reduces animal product. So you can measure milk production or wool production or growth. Presence of parasites is a problem. It, so the animal's alive. It's just not growing as well. In humans, we believe that parasitism affects school attendance, physical development, even IQ. Um, early, early exposure to malaria may have very long-term influences on childhood development. It doesn't mean that everybody suffers. It just means as a population, these things take a toll. Um, the worms are not lethal. So it's not like HIV or TB or even malaria. Uh, and some people think, well, you know, the health outcomes of these people aren't that easy to measure for mild infections. But I think they do affect us. They do have strong effects on our physiology and our resilience as animals. Do parasites have a microbiome of their own? Oh, a terrific question. Uh, yeah, the, the worms do, uh, especially the gut worms. Um, we're only learning a little bit about this now. So this developed, there's a, there's a, I don't know if you've had a, a podcast on Cenorhabditis elegans. C. elegans is a model organism that's used in, oh my gosh, thousands of laboratories around the world. It's been the basis for a couple of Nobel prizes. Um, it's a free living nematode. And so not all nematodes are parasitic. It lives in soil. If you went out to your backyard, you'd, you'd find it. Um, they're tiny, they're harmless, they're transparent, but they have a microbiome. Um, and now we're finding out that some parasites do, and we really have almost no idea of why or what, what that means. Well, I guess a lot of things spring to mind. What 
you know, if we're infected by a worm that has its own microbiome, <laughs> how does that microbiome interact with ours? Does it help yeah. the, you know, does it help the worm to set up a more effective niche? Um, well, clearly, you know, Rick, there are interactions between parasitic worms and the, the gut microbiome. That's pretty clear. Um, we don't know what that means. Um, if, for instance, I mentioned this hygiene hypothesis, if the presence of worms in the gut alters the microbiome, maybe that's why they can alleviate some of the symptoms of colitis uh, or IBD. We don't know that yet. A fascinating part of this is um, the tissue worms that are called filaria. They cause significant pathology in people, but they harbor a symbiotic bacterium called Wolbachia that is essential for their viability and reproduction. So alone among uh, the vast number of, of parasitic worms, these particular thread-like worms that live in tissues, almost all of them have these bacteria that are essential. And you can get rid of them by giving them antibiotics. So that's kind of an, uh, I guess that's a microbiome, but it's inside the worm tissues rather than in its gut. This is crazy. I mean, I've, I've yeah. spoken to people that I know that, um, you know, all tissues in the body essentially have their microbial attachments. I've learned that, um, yeah. you know, for instance, in the mouth, there's many different niches. Yes. Um, I bet you that if I have a tooth and a tooth next to it has a filling, that tooth has a different microbiome. And the reason I'm postulating that is that I've spoken to researchers that say, like, in an organ, if an organ has a tumor, the tumor has its own unique microbiome. So right. I bet you that long-term parasites in a host, uh, if they don't have it at first, they attract as part ah. of the microenvironment, their own microbiome that's different from the host. I, I will tell you that's a very provocative suggestion. It has not been studied yet um, in any meaningful way. It's just, we're just getting into this now. I should mention, I mean, one of the problems in general in parasitology is it's not generously supported by research funds from the West where most research happens because... You, you have to steal funds from other organizations like a parasite. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good joke. Um, you know, they're, they're not threatening to the lives of North Americans by and large, or, or Europeans. And so it's difficult to convince funders that global health is an important um, objective. Other than HIV and TB, we're all worried about those. Um, and clearly HIV is a significant problem in the West still. So a lot of the things that we would like to do, we just don't have the support to do them, nor do we have the tools. Again, I, I, you know, we cannot grow a, a helminth parasite from egg to egg in the laboratory. So everything we do with helminths, with worms, requires hosts. And that's expensive, and they're inside the host, and they're hard to work with. And um, it's not like growing E. coli in, a, in an agar plate or a virus in the cell culture. These are challenging organisms to work with on, on a fundamental level. You know, the interesting is what if you had a mouse that had cancer and you gave it various parasites and saw <laughs> if any of them affected the, and it's, I mean, I know it's, it's just blind experimentation, but the thought came to mind. 
I have not seen anybody do that. Um, the immunomodulatory effects could be interesting. They, they, they might actually enhance tumor growth. They tend to produce T-regulatory phenotypes and T-cells, which dampen immune responses. Um, but I haven't, a few parasites are, are associated with increased cancer. Um, I have to remember these. There's a, um, a fluke called Apisthorcus, I think, which in, in Asia is associated with a particular cancer, stomach cancer maybe, um, and a few other ones. So, so actually there are some that are associated with cancers, but I don't know that there's any evidence that any of them is protective. Well, I mean, there are anecdotes that people talk about. You've heard of tertiary syphilis. No, I haven't. What's that about? Okay, so syphilis was what killed Al Capone, right? The, the, the famous gangster. Tax evasion and then syphilis. <laughs> yes. So before the era of antibiotics, if syphilis got into the brain, became neurosyphilis, it was essentially lethal. Um, and what people had figured out was that inducing malaria in those patients would generate fevers so high that they could actually cure it. They, the, the fever was so high it would kill the syphilis bacteria. So malaria was a therapy for neurosyphilis. There's a quite an interesting history of that. And then wow. the introduction of antibiotics eliminated the need. I, I have no clue if this is related at all, but uh, yeah. I believe I read that like some of the CAR T therapies, um, <laughs> you know, produce cytokine storms and, and yeah. um, fevers so high yeah. that it seemed or that seemed to have the same effect on cancer. So yeah. again, you know, just complete speculation, but. Imagine if you could induce malaria in someone to cure certain cancers. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the, the um, therapies for cancer, in addition to CAR T, is, is a photoactivated thermogenesis, right? So they, they try to paint the tumor, if you will, or to infuse it with nanoparticles that will be uh, 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 that release heat in response to particular wavelengths of light. So photothermal therapy, I think it's called. Um, there's a lot of, we, we don't know what the relative sensitivity of tumor cells to heat is, to temperature compared to uh, non-malignant cells. But you're, you're touching, I think, Rich, on one of the points you raised, which is what's the relationship between the parasite and the host physiologically? Um, how do they influence it? Lots of unanswered questions. I was going to ask you, do, do parasites have their own viruses that prey on them? Do they have like <laughs> parasite phages? People have looked forever. Um, the answer is probably the worms do, um, and some of the protozoa do. They seem to have associated viruses. We have not yet been able to exploit those to for for genome rearrangements for genomic editing but yeah and again it's another barely studied aspect of it but yes it appears that parasites at least some of them do have uh viruses yeah i guess i guess in my mind i'm really developing like a you know it's like truly a, an interconnected web of life at all yeah. levels and it, it goes further than we can even imagine it's just amazing you know it's really uh, amazing you know, um, the power of parasites to illuminate these things is, is really remarkable. 
just in the evolution, there are some parasites that have, I think, three hosts before they wind up in their final host. How did this evolve? It's, it's just almost mind-boggling to think about the pressure that gets organisms to follow this trajectory. Are there, I mean, in, in terms of taxonomy, at, at how high a level can parasites go from host to host? You know, they can go from mosquito to human, which is a big jump, but can they go from kingdom to kingdom? Plant to animal, fungi? That's a great question. So far as we know, no. There are many plant parasites, particularly plant parasitic nematodes, that live in soil and cause enormous crop damage globally. Um, but as, as far as I know, none transfer across that kingdom gap. Within the kingdom of Animalia, yeah, they go, my goodness, all over the place, vertebrates and vertebrates back and forth. Okay. So what's, um, I've been running all over the place with speculation here, but right. so what's your current research focus uh, on right now? Like what, what do you, what questions are you looking at right now? Well, uh, that's that I kind of have a twofold uh, portfolio. One, I'm still involved in sort of drug discovery and the understanding of drug action. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to help um, develop assays to detect drugs, novel drugs, and things like that. The other aspect is in understanding this language, how the molecules released by parasites influence the host. And we're really working in three levels of that. Uh, one is proteins. So proteins are known to be secreted by, by parasitic elements, and we'd like to understand how they influence the host. They also secrete small molecular weight metabolites, which are quite bioactive, some of them, and we're trying to figure out what the structure of those is. And the last bit is a, a new, newish kind of um, message called microRNAs, which you've probably had a podcast about. The microRNAs are short 23 to 25 nucleotide RNAs that regulate gene expression, and they seem to be ubiquitous among all animal life and plant life. Um, in human medicine, they're tied to cancer, to all kinds of things. But parasites release them, in, and they appear to have targets in the host genome. They destabilize messenger RNA, so they reduce protein expression. And we're really putting a fair amount of effort into under, trying to understand um, how these things are influencing the host response, how they contribute to creating a permissive niche for the parasite. We call it the molecular dialogue between hosts and parasites. Um, One of the things that's true, Rich, is that the common statistic is more animals can be called parasite than any other designation. So parasitism is a very common life cycle, a lifestyle for animals. It's really easy if you can figure out how to survive. You're protected from temperature fluctuations. You're sitting in the middle of your food. You know, you don't have to worry about predation. So there's, there's a lot of advantages there. But the fact is that we, as non-parasitic animals, have evolved exceptional defenses against them. So the millions of parasite species that are out there, humans are infected by you know, a relative handful. So we are really good at killing parasites, at preventing them from establishing. 
So the few species that work, that succeed in us, must have developed tools, molecular, a language that allows them to escape our normally highly effective surveillance system. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that drives me. What's the basis for host parasite specificity? Um, in terms of long-term therapy, if we knew what factors the parasites used to convince us to leave them alone, well, that's the factor that you target to prevent them from hiding and make us non-permissive hosts rather than permissive. So if I was to live which, in... Um, Go ahead. Oh, we, uh, I was thinking, which um, what, what kind of parasites appear to be the most... Um, have the skills or the ability to affect the most different types of uh, hosts? So the, the one champion, I mentioned this earlier, is a parasite called toxoplasma. You may have, I don't know if you have been around pregnant people very much, but they often say to pregnant women, watch out for cats. Yep, I've heard that. So that's because I've of toxoplasma. That. Toxoplasma is a protozoan parasite related to malaria parasites. The only known definitive hosts are cats. So the only place that sex happens is a cat. And the cat releases in its feces into the environment an infectious stage called an oocyst of toxoplasma. And toxoplasma can succeed in a whole range of vertebrate hosts, snakes, birds, reptiles, people, dogs, cats. It's incredible. So Toxoplasma somehow has figured out, and what happens, I'm sorry, is that in us, it forms long-lived cysts um, waiting to be eaten by a cat. If the cat eats us, so a lion or a tiger or a malicious house cat, um, the cycle will continue. Um, if it gets into an infant in utero, it can cause significant congenital problems. Otherwise, yeah, I just I just realized something. Even even death of the host, if a that, parasite goes into cyst form, even causing of the death, even causing the death of the host is not the end, because no. then somehow it's known that other creatures will eat it. Like you know, I imagine if if um, a person gets sick with with you know toxoplasmosis and they die, I mean, what happens to the bugs and stuff that eat them when they're dead? Would uh, that be a mechanism for, for resetting it? And now the toxoplasma goes back into, you know, flies or whatever it is that eats the person. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Um, it's a good question. They seem to be adapted to animals, uh, warm-blooded animals, um, as far as I know. Well, I don't know. Snakes are, no, snakes are cold-blooded, right? So snakes are also affected. But it doesn't seem to go into insects. It's not affected it's not transmitted at all by insects just by but, cats but I, what i realized is like you know i, I asked the, myself the question why would a parasite kill its host <laughs> then it's it's stuck but it's not actually because if it kills the right host yeah. and that host tends to get eaten by other animals that's not the end for it so it's no, fine if it kills it's the host. right there's a couple like that there are a couple like the tapeworms can be like that too so there are some tapeworms that insist, and when they're consumed, their life cycle continues. That's an I hadn't thought about that very much, but that's a really interesting point. I guess uh, you know my brain's going. Hmm, crazy. It should be. Parasites are wonderful, Rich. They're 
They're understudied, they're ubiquitous, they're incredible detriments to human and animal health and agriculture, and they're kind of gross, and most people are pretty well grossed out by them. No, that's true. I mean, um, do any parasites uh, become mutualistic with their host? Ah, boy, that's a, so, so, that's a wonderful question. Um, I don't have an answer for you. Uh, it's probably a more talented parasitologist would be better able to address that. Um, certainly there are some that exhibit markedly limited pathology. Uh, tapeworm in a person, you wouldn't even know you had it until you see the segments in your poop. Um, so there are some that are very mild. I don't know that we'd call them mutualistic, but they are some that are very have pathogenicity of a very minor scale. Are, are some parasites heritable, or do they endogenize literally into our DNA like viruses do, or become part of us? No, that doesn't happen. Um, there are congenital parasites. Um, some can infect in utero. Toxoplasma is one of them. There probably are others that I don't know of. There are a lot of bizarre. If you have a puppy, um, puppies, do you have a dog? Yeah, I know about puppies. Well, mine are older, but yeah, puppies are famous for getting worms. Yeah, but one of the roots is actually the hookworms. They will migrate, the larvae will migrate to the uh, mammary gland, and the pup will get them in milk. It's, I mean, it's just... How they figured this stuff out, I don't know, but it, it's remarkable. That's not congenital, but it's neonatal, maternal. Yeah, that's um, yeah, there are many animals in which parasite replication occurs. It, it, it blooms during pregnancy when there's an immunosuppressive event, but that ensures that the environment around the newborn will be loaded with parasites, ready to be <laughs> accepted. They're very clever. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, I guess one more broad issue or area is that you you seem to be open to far more than, you know, the average scientist that's like a, you know, a hardcore neo-Darwinist, let's say. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's wrong, but in in terms of uh, pharmacology, I I just have the feeling that you would be open to looking at, um, you know, instead of just drugs, uh, you know, uh, plant medicines, things like that. Is there any room in your research to do that? Or is that just sure. anything of personal interest at all? Actually, some of the best antiparasitics are plant-based, right? They're, they're plant or, or microbial natural products. So I've long had a fascination with natural products because um, parasites exist in, in of plants. So plants have evolved chemical defenses against them. Why it doesn't always make sense, but it's true. So, like you may have heard of quinine or quinine, as the British call it, right. the original anti-malarial medicine comes from a tree, and we've okay. since made semi-synthetic derivatives of it, which are better. But but that was the original cure for malaria. Um, there's a drug called ivermectin, which is the most widely used medicine for helminths, and that was derived from a bacterial fermentation. I did run a project funded by the Gates Foundation to try to find new antihelminthics, drugs for worms, in collections of natural products in um, Africa and in in various parts of the U.S. So 
the richness of chemistry in nature is far greater than what we have made in laboratories. Much harder to work with. Um, structures are very complex. The factors that govern their production are not very well known or understood. Um, but I do think it makes sense to look there for, for new drugs. It's hard, but I, I do view natural products as being a real resource. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Well, well, very good. What's what's the best way for people to uh, to learn more about your work, well, your research, uh, and you know maybe get in touch or um, probably through my email address uh, for getting in touch. I, I don't have a very good website. I'm uh, I'm an older fellow, Rich, and I, I I can say that all they need to do is look around for parasitologists, and you'll be entertained for for life listening to stories. Um, I'm happy to to respond to inquiries or, or questions. Uh, do you have my email? Oh uh, yeah, I do, and I can. Yeah, uh, if you're I, open I to mind, it, I'll share that in your notes. I don't mind sharing it. I, I mean, if it gets to be ridiculous, I'll do something about it. But I actually don't anticipate the uh, the worst part. Not the worst. I don't mean one of the detriments because I, I had been the director of the Institute of Parasitology at McGill for some years. There's a condition in people which is a, a pseudo-parasitism. It's, it's a phantom parasitism. Um, hmm. And, and I, get, I used to get, oh, once a month an email from someone who was sure that they had a parasite that the doctor couldn't uh, diagnose. And um, I'm not a physician. I, I, I tried to, to stay away from this, but it, it, you know, there aren't parasites that do what they think they have. Right. Um, I... Yeah, it, it's a it's a very sad thing because these are not mentally ill people. They have real sensations of things crawling under their skin and stuff like that. Um, so that would be my only worry about sharing. <laughs> if you if you share, just make sure he's not a physician. <laughs> yeah, well, no worries, no worries. Yeah, okay. Well, very good. That's well, great. Tim, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. If I can follow up with anything, Rich, if you think of questions later, please let me know. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, Virtual reality and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.